Yeah, it's good that you know to sit down. I don't have to give you those instructions. I appreciate the independent thinking this morning. <laughs> Welcome to Worship With Us Life Church. It's good to see you today. If we don't know one another, and there's a good chance that we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders here. And I'm also on the staff, and it's my joy to welcome you to worship with us this morning. I'm so glad that you are here. I, for one, have been giddy about today for a long time. Um, I didn't sleep really at all last night just because I was excited about this and excited about being here with y'all. And as we get started, um, I did want to take just a minute to uh, say thanks to a lot of you who have gone way out of your way as. My family and I have gotten settled here in Salisbury and at Life Church over the last few weeks. Um, when we rolled in uh, to this area a few weeks ago, um, the home we're staying, there's actually a banner waiting for us that said, Welcome Home. And those two words have really just captured so well the way that so many of you have received us. And, and we've heard that from so many of you over and over and over again, which has been awesome. But even more awesome, we've, we've felt it. And you have just open your lives to us and your home to us. And so as Kristen and I have gotten settled here, we have just appreciated very much the love and kindness that many of you are showing to us as we kind of get established here. And our children are feeling that too. And I do just really appreciate that, appreciate you. Um, we are pumped to be here and for Salisbury to be our home, uh, for Life Church to be our family. And I'm just glad that the Lord has allowed this. I'm glad today that we get to spend time in the Word of God together. And so why don't you go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18 here in just a couple of moments. Um, it is, it seems to me, like right and reasonable to just pause and recognize the fact that we are in a new chapter in the life of our church, really beginning a new chapter in the life of our church. We've come through a season of transition that at times was a little bit difficult and challenging, and we praise the Lord for the fact that he has graciously sustained us through that season, and we're excited to be moving into what is next, but um, it's a new beginning of sorts for us, and so it's right in a moment that is a new beginning to, to just ask some good and honest questions about like who we are and who are we going to become as a church and what's going to be most important to us as a church and what is our ministry going to look like to one another and in our community in this new season? How will we go about making disciples of all nations for the glory of Jesus like Jesus calls us to as a church? And so at the beginning of our time together here in 2020, um, we're going to take a few weeks just to think about the Lord's answers to those questions. We're going to do that by looking at some passages at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because when we have questions like those, when we're wondering about what should be most important to us and, and what our priorities ought to be, like it's always so encouraging to remember that God has not left us to kind of fend for ourselves and figure out the answers on our own. No, he's given us those answers. He's revealed them to us through his word. And so we're going to look to the word of the Lord together to kind of come to an understanding about who we are as a church and what we should value as a church, and what our priorities and our commitments ought to be. It's hard to get anywhere with someone if you're not on the same page about what's most important. It's hard to get anywhere if you don't value the same things. So about a month ago, my wife and I, we packed up our four children and our dog and all of the possessions that we really care about, 
and we shoved them into our two vehicles. Um, we had three of our kids and my Honda Civic with me, and then she was driving our minivan with the other kid and the dog and a bunch of stuff. We looked comical driving down the road, y'all, because like, if you had driven by our caravan, you could have seen that Kristen could like, barely see anything out of the back of our van. Stuff was just stuffed in there, but we had a long way to go, and we were excited to get there. Uh, we drove about 1,800 miles on each vehicle, or in each vehicle, as we moved from Lincoln, Nebraska. We stopped in Dallas, Texas for a while to do Christmas with my family, even though Dallas, Texas is not on the way to here. If you have looked at a map, you know that very well. And then we drove in here. And so it was a long trip, I think about 25 hours in the car total, two cars the whole way, just a, just a comical sight. And anyway, at one point, as we're driving along, um, Kristen, she calls me on my cell phone, and I answer the phone, and she says, James, I think we need to get my speedometer checked. And I said, why do you think we need to get your speedometer checked? And she said, it's because when it says I'm driving the speed limit, I can't keep up with you. (laughs) And I think that illustrates the point that if you're not on the same page about what's most important, it's hard to get anywhere with anyone. See, what was most important to me in that moment was getting here before my children spilled cheer wine all over the backseat of my car, right? That was what was most important to me. Most important to Kristen was, you know, following the rules not breaking the law, not getting a speeding ticket. And so she was struggling to get somewhere with me, and in a much bigger way, a much more serious way. Um, As a church, we will struggle to thrive unless we come around what is most important together and just lift up what the Lord lifts up as most important. And we will, if we do that, church, enjoy just really incredible unity with one another when we set our eyes on what the Lord lays before us in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. So let's turn to the word of the Lord this morning. We're going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read through verse 25, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll unpack this passage together. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have revealed your ways and your purposes and your wisdom. You have done that most fully through the person of your son, Jesus, but also you have given us your word, which points us to him and which gives us insight and direction as individuals and as a church. And so as we walk into a new year and a new season in the life of our church, as we consider what life will look like in 2020, 
we pray that you would give us great comfort and counsel and direction from the truth of Scripture. Teach us now, Lord. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It's a letter to a church in Corinth. And if you read this letter, it becomes very quickly apparent that the church in Corinth was just a hot mess, right? Like major issues in every chapter are just kind of jumping off of the page. And so 1 Corinthians deals with um, division and issue in the church around greed, around pride, around envy, around lust. But the first issue and the most prominent issue that Paul tackles as he's writing this church is the issue of disunity in the body. The Corinthians were not of one mind and of one accord. And so he writes to them to help them establish unity. And the three passages that we're going to look at over the next three weeks, they really lay a foundation for the kind of unity a church should enjoy as they are called to by Jesus. In our passage this morning, Paul talks about, he uses this phrase, the word of the cross. That's just another way for Paul to talk about the good news of what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus. It is on the cross that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, became fully man. He lived a perfect human life, but then he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And Paul says that the word of the cross, the message of the cross is the surest foundation for a church's unity. We're going to see three things about the word of the cross this morning that will point us toward the kind of unity we can enjoy as a church in 2020 and beyond. And so let's look at these three things. I'm not going to say everything that we could say about this passage. I'm not going to say everything that we could say even about each of these three things. But we'll try to show you the main things this morning as we begin to prepare for our celebration of the Lord's Supper together. So here's the first one. The word of the cross, the good news of Jesus, it divides the world absolutely. The word of the cross divides the world absolutely. Look with me at verse 18, if you will. Paul, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's folly to those who are perishing, foolishness, silliness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what Paul's doing there is he's showing us that there are two distinct groups of people. Those groups are separate from one another. The division between them is absolute. So there's nobody who's like kind of in this group and then kind of in the other group at the same time. There's no middle ground between these two groups. There are only two groups of people in the world. They are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And then, of course, he makes it clear that the thing that distinguishes between these two groups is each individual's response to the word of the cross. Those who are perishing, they've heard the message of the cross, they've heard the good news that Jesus died to save sinners, and they've thought that's ridiculous. On the other side, those who are being saved, they've heard the good news that Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, and they've rightly recognized that that good news is the very power of God because we are incapable of saving ourselves. But that distinction between perishing and being saved, it all hinges on how we respond to the word of the cross. The gospel, it divides us absolutely. Now often when we talk 
about the gospel and the work that God has done for us through Jesus. We're very quick to talk about how the gospel is a unifying power in the world. And that's right, we should do that. I mean, especially today we should do that as we you know, prepare for something like Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. Like we should recognize that the gospel rightly unifies people of every tribe and tongue and nation, every skin color, every ethnic background, every religious background, every moral background, every kind of personal history, every socioeconomic level. Right? The gospel brings all sorts of people together around the cross. In fact, Scripture tells us that God has worked in such a way in history that when the heavenly beings, this is what Ephesians 3 says, when the heavenly beings look down on the unity of Christ's church, all of these diverse people who are brought together by the cross, the heavenly beings actually give praise and glory to the wisdom and the grace of God. And so the unity in diversity of the church is so spectacular that even heavenly beings are amazed by it. And that's the kind of thing that we usually talk about when we emphasize the unity that the gospel creates. But what Paul first wants us to understand is that that unity is only possible because first the gospel has divided the people who are not the people of Christ from the people who are the people of Christ. And so that division, it hinges on how we respond to the message of the cross. Some hear about the cross, and they think it's foolishness. They hear the message of a holy God who justly punishes sinners for their sin. And they think that's just too naive. Some hear about Christ's death as a substitute for his people. And they think, well, that's too exclusive or too bloody or too obsolete. Some hear the message of Jesus' call for those who come after him to deny themselves. And they think that is just too costly. And so objections come to their minds and they reject the word of the cross. They are perishing, Paul says. But there are others who, by God's grace and through the work of the Holy Spirit, hear the message of the cross and respond with joy. We hear the message of the cross and we respond with a desire to commune with Christ and to commune with his people. We hear the message of the cross and that produces in us a desire to serve and worship and follow our Savior. Paul's point here is that there are only these two groups and the word of the cross divides those two groups absolutely. Now I hope that as we hear that this morning, as we consider that this morning, it just really puts right before us the need that every one of us has to consider how we have responded to the word of the cross. And so I ask you to do that today. I mean, I just ask you to consider the balance of your life. I ask you to consider the things that are clearly most important in your life. I ask you to consider the things that get your time and your energy and your money and your effort. I ask you to consider the things that you get excited about, the things that you from time to time daydream about, the things that you long for, the desires of your hearts and the delights of your soul. I ask you to consider the balance of your life. And then I ask you, have you rightly responded to the word of the cross? When you think about everything that makes you, you, 
Does it look like you're living like the cross is folly or power? Do you live like the cross of Jesus changes everything? Or do you live like the cross of Jesus is just, you know, one of the good things in your life? Right? Is it just one of the planets that's in orbit around what you really want to do and who you really want to be? Or is it the center of gravity that defines who you are and makes you, you? How have you responded really, truly to the word of the cross this morning? And I ask you to think about that. Like the, the really good news is that it's not too late to change your answer. Right? If you have lived a life, regardless of what you've said, regardless of what you've assumed you've always believed, regardless of what you think that you've done or haven't done, if you've lived a life that as you survey it now, you think, man, I've really rejected the word of the cross, well, it's not too late to embrace it. It's not too late to call wisdom what you once called folly. It's not too late to call power what you once called weakness. Because there's no one here who has done too much. As we've just sung, there's no one here who has outsinned the great mercy of our God. He knows all. He is omniscient, all-knowing, yet he counts not the sum of our sins. And so we can still turn to him. And I pray that you would if you haven't. I pray that you would look at the word of the cross and see it as the wisdom of God and the power of God that it is. The first thing that this passage teaches us, the word of the cross, it divides the world. Absolutely. Here's the second. The word of the cross exposes the folly, the foolishness of the world's wisdom. We begin to see that when we read verse 19 again. Paul, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, the Lord is speaking here. Paul says, for it is written... I, that's the Lord, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, God has ordained to bring to an end what the world thinks is wise and what the world thinks is discerning. He's he's ordained to just destroy those things and prove them to be the folly that they are. And Paul now says, and he's done that through the cross. The cross has proved the wisdom of the world to be broken and empty and worthless, which is why he can go on to say in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, the cross, it proves that what the world thinks is wisdom is really in the end foolish. Now, I hope you realize that Since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden and corruption entered into the world, that the wisdom of the world has been making nonstop promises that it just can't deliver on, right? I mean, that's just the condition of the world. The world says, this is true, and it just can't hold up. The world says, this is going to solve all of our problems, and it just can't hold up. And so we could pick a ton of examples of this, but just think about like the promises of technological advancement for a moment. We live in an incredibly advanced society in terms of technology. Technology is everywhere. It's doing everything. And the basic promise of technology is that if we embrace technology, it's going to make our lives better. And while I'll say for sure that technology has made a lot of things easier, it's made our lives more convenient in a lot of respects, and it's very helpful in any number of ways, 
I don't think we can honestly say that technology has made our lives better. Can we? I mean, like I walk around and I have this glowing rectangle in my pocket from which I can call thousands of people, from which I can immediately access any bit of information. But does that really make me any more connected to anyone? I mean, like when you walk into a restaurant and you see an entire family of people staring at their glowing rectangle rather than communing with one another, does anybody really think, man, technology is bringing us closer to one another? No, because it can't deliver on the promises that it's made. Like we have more information, we're wiser, we're better educated because of technology, but we're not more moral because of technology. Like we have more relationships with people and we can communicate more easily with people, but we're not any better connected with people because of technology. We're just not. In fact, research is telling us that though we have all of these relationships, we're actually far lonelier than we've ever been as people. There's hard evidence that suggests that teenagers who have social media accounts where they have you know, thousands of friends or followers or people who like whatever they're doing, they're way more depressed today than teenagers were 30 years ago because this information is there, but it's just actually killing us. It's destroying us. It's not making us better. It's not making us happier. The world's wisdom, it can't deliver on its promises. And so it promises technology is going to fix your problems. It's just not happening. We may know more, but we're not better people. We may have more opportunity to, you know, connect with people, but we are not more known as people, and we don't know people more deeply. We may have more opportunity to help others in our world, but we're not any less selfish than we've always been. We may have better methods of communication, but we don't really understand one another any better. We may have better medicine and education and everything, Yet there's still in our society today more violence, more war, more crime, more hate. I mean, the world's wisdom, it hasn't made the world better. It hasn't made us better. Because the world promises things and it just can't deliver on those promises. Why not? It's because, as Paul says, the message of the cross has exposed the folly of the world's wisdom. I mean, think about the cross and think about how it runs against the grain of everything that the world's wisdom says is true. The world says that strength is better than weakness. But on the cross, Jesus won an eternal victory through weakness. The world says that you need power and charisma to get your way. But Jesus changed everything on the cross by becoming broken and weak and vulnerable and humble. The world says that you need to exalt yourself and follow your heart and pursue your happiness at all costs. But Jesus received eternal glory and honor, not because he exalted himself, but because he humbled himself. Not because he followed his heart, but because he denied himself and endured the scorn and shame of the cross and died in our place. All of that as an act of service, right? Giving himself rather than trying to receive for himself. See, the cross, it has proved that God's way of working, God's wisdom, it's better than the world's folly. It's better than the world's wisdom. The cross has just exposed how empty and broken the way of the world is. If we want unity, church, and if we want to understand the way our lives should go, 
We have to embrace God's way and not the world's, and we have to recognize that God's way of working turns the world's way of working upside down. We have to expect those upside down things. Now here's the third thing, the word of the cross. It reveals God's power through weakness. Look at verse 22 with me, if you will. Paul says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So he's talking about Jews and Greeks and Jews and Gentiles here because he wants us to understand that this is inclusive of all people. All people in the world think the cross is folly and that it's a stumbling block. But, verse 24, to those who are called by the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, again, all people, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But Paul's, his main point here is, we preach Christ crucified. And, and I just have to say that in the Bible Belt in 2020, it's really difficult for us to track with just how profoundly disruptive putting those two words together would have been in the first century. Christ crucified. Those are two concepts in the first century that would never have belonged together. A crucified king, that's just not right. That's not how it would have worked. See, we don't get this. Like, it's lost on us largely because like, the cross is so commonplace. Like, it adorns our churches and our homes and our cars and our jewelry, and we're just used to seeing the cross everywhere. We're comfortable talking about the cross, but in the first century, in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul, the cross was this object of utter scorn and shame and humiliation so that no polite person would have talked about it. It was not just an instrument of torture and execution. It was an instrument of humiliation and shame. And for that reason, the Romans, though they crucified tons of people, they refused to crucify their own citizens. Right? The cross was okay for barbarians, but it was far too shameful and humiliating for the citizens of Rome. But then here in the wisdom of God, we have Jesus Christ, a crucified Messiah, a crucified king, a crucified savior. Like in the first century, those words, they just would not have gone together. Like you couldn't put those two ideas together. They didn't make sense. It was an oxymoron, a crucified Messiah. It's like fried ice or an honest politician or UNC basketball. <laughs> See, here's my strategy. I hear there's an amen over here. Here's my strategy, right? I'm trying to build a relationship with y'all. I throw the UNC fans under the bus today. Next week, I'll throw Duke fans under the bus. All of you will hate me and we'll be united in that, right? That's, that's kind of my goal. But <laughs> I'm sorry. So Christ crucified. Like those words just, just shouldn't have gone together, right? They didn't make any sense in the world in which Paul spoke them and wrote them. A crucified Messiah would have seemed impossible, right? No king gains his crown not by crushing his people, but by being crushed for the sake of his people. No king gains his crown, not by making people his slaves, but by becoming a slave for his people, a servant of his people. No king gains his crown, not by grabbing power and authority for himself, but by becoming weak and a servant of all. Yet that is exactly how God worked to save his people through the cross of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the only son of God, 
the creator of all things. He disrobed himself of the power and authority and rights and privileges that were due to him because of his position. He took on human form. He entered into the messiness and brokenness of this world. He lived a perfect life among his people. And he did all of that in order to die a shameful, disgraceful death. The most shameful and disgraceful death imaginable. He died it also that he could bear our sin and our shame. And Paul's point is that only God would conceive of such a plan. Only God is so foolish as to be so wise as to come up with this plan, to reveal power through weakness, to save the world through a broken, crucified king. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men, Paul says. Now this morning, as we've said, we are going to lean into the means of grace that is the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take Holy Communion together. And what I want to do um, for the last few minutes that I have is to just start to prepare our hearts for that by pointing us in two directions of application from this passage. So we've thought about the word of the cross a little bit and the way it it divides and the way that it it makes folly the wisdom of the world and the way that it reveals God's power in weakness. I want to tease out for us two ways that, that we can apply that to set up the way that we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. The first way that we can apply this, it's for each of us as individuals. And then the second way that we can apply it, it's for us as a church, as a, as a body together. And so here's, here's the first way. This is for you and for me as an individual. I just pray this morning that you are mindful of the fact that you will always be tempted to make something other than the message of the cross, the word of the cross, the central defining reality of your life. Right? You're always going to be tempted to drift away from that and towards the wisdom of the world. See, though the cross has made the wisdom of the world to be folly, like the wisdom of the world still sounds really good to us. It still catches our ears and tickles our fancy and and tries to, to drag us in its direction. And so my fear as a result of that is not that somebody in the room would like wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, the cross, I'm done with that, and then walk away. I don't really fear that. But what I fear is that little by little, moment by moment, day by day, things that the world calls us to would start to look better than Jesus does. Things that the world says are good would start to look more beautiful than Jesus does. And so we need to be mindful of the fact that we're, we're always going to be tempted in that direction in a fallen world. We're always going to be tempted to make something other than the cross the very center of our lives. We might still want Jesus in our life. We might still want him to be one of the planets in orbit around us. But we're always going to be tempted to put something else at the very center of gravity. And so this morning, I'd like you, in light of that, to think about the things that you need to do in your life in order to continue to cultivate your affection for and your love for Jesus. Right? We need our affection for Jesus to be increasing. We need our love for our Savior to be growing 
so that when the wisdom of the world calls, we'll have the resources we need to, to shove that away. And so what is it that you can do in your life that will stir your affection for the Lord? Like, I really want you to answer that question for yourself today. I really want you to think about the things that, that you can walk in, the habits that you can cultivate, the habits that you can pursue that will cause you to grow in your affection for the Lord. For me, and it's not going to be the same for you than it is for me, I get that, but, but for me, there are a few things where I know that these things will stir my heart for the Lord. Like for whatever reason, an early morning, an open Bible, and a cup of black coffee like stirs my heart for Jesus. There's something about like wrapping my fingers around the warm mug and smelling the smell of the coffee while my Bible is open where my soul just, it just resonates in that moment. And I'm like, yes, this is right. And as I read the word of the Lord, his spirit just helps me come back to the cross and back to my savior and back to the good news of his gospel. Good conversations with people who love me and love the Lord they stir my affection for the Lord. God has graced me with some people in my life who, who I'm chasing after, right? They're far ahead of me in their walk with the Lord. And so I want to pray like Marty prays. I want to read the word the way that Jerry reads the word. I want to love the gospel the way that Travis loves the gospel. And so those people, they're ahead of me. And I find that I'm chasing after them. And so when I talk to them and we converse with one another, the Lord just uses that to stir me up for him. And then long conversations with my wife about anything tend to stir my affection for Jesus because Kristen, she challenges me to hate the things the Lord hates and to love the things the Lord loves better. And so it doesn't matter if we're just in the car running errands, like talking with Kristen. It, it like draws me to the Lord. It stirs my affection for him. What stirs your affection for him? What causes you to grow in your love for Jesus and for his cross. You need answers to that question. And then you need to also know the things in your life that are likely to kill your affection for him. You need to know the habits and the patterns and the pursuits that rob you of your love for Jesus. And I'll tell you this, it's probably not for most of us something that is inherently sinful. Like it's probably not necessarily for most of us something that is on the surface bad. Right? It's not like that we're going to just walk in all the things that the Lord hates and that's going to rob our affection for Jesus. No, we're going to walk in a lot of things that are kind of neutral things and some of them even good things, but the way we're going to do it is out of balance. It's going to choke off our affection for the Lord. And so your favorite Netflix show might not be the problem. The problem might be the fact that you, you know, watch it four hours a day and you fill every open moment in your life with it or with sports, or with cable news, or something like that, so that the capacity that you do have for enjoying Jesus gets diminished. The problem might not be your diet regimen or your exercise plan. I mean, those are not bad things on the surface. But if your life is driven by this vision of who you hope to become through that diet regimen and exercise plan, like if all of your longings and all of your desires are bound up in this ripped version of you that you hope exists in the future, that is going to kill your affection for Jesus. And so we not only need to know what stirs our affection for him, we need to know what kills our affection for him. We need to fight those things and flee from those things where we can. And so church... This year, life in 2020, what are you going to walk in 
It's just going to stir up your affection for our Lord. What are you going to walk away from that might kill your affection for our Lord? We need to be mindful of the fact that we will always be tempted to make something or someone other than Jesus the very center of our lives. And now here's the application for us. As we think about our life together as a church, this year and every year to come after this until Christ returns, I hope we recognize that our only hope for a unified life together will come with our eyes fixed on the cross. See, unity doesn't come when you talk a lot about unity. Unity doesn't come when you get together in a room and you try to think about how to be unified. You don't experience peace with other people when you make experiencing peace with other people your focus. Unity comes when we take our eyes off of ourselves and what we want, when we take our eyes off of others and others' shortcomings, and when we instead set our eyes on our crucified Savior. When we do that, when we keep our eyes fixed firmly on him, we will enjoy a measure of unity that we could not enjoy otherwise. A.W. Tozer was a famous pastor and theologian. Here's how he wrote about this idea. He has an illustration of this that I've just always loved. He says, 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, and he means a tuning fork. We don't use that anymore, but it's the thing where you ding it and it would make a pitch. And he's saying all 100 of these pianos, if they're tuned to that same fork, they're automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord, they're unified, by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So too, he goes on, 100 worshipers met together, each looking not at one another, not at their own preferences, and not at their own shortcomings, but each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Church, may we find life in 2020 by taking our eyes off of ourselves and setting them fully on our crucified king. Pray with me. Jesus, we pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way that our affection for you would grow and that our eyes would be fixed on you, that we might come to enjoy a full measure of your peace and the unity for which you died and the the unity among your people for which you prayed. Help us to experience those things as a church, Lord, and as individuals in 2020. We pray for that kind of life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.